0: Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's year-end show, Jonathan Northcroft looks back at the story of the year, Leicester City, and talks about his new book, Fearless, The Amazing Underdog Story of Leicester City, The Greatest Miracle in Sports History.
1: It really has nothing to compare with, I would contend, and that's one of the things that made last year so special, because I really feel we were watching a team do what nobody had done in football before, without much compare, I would say, even in the sporting world.
0: All that and more, coming up. Today is our final podcast of 2016, and our guest is here to talk about the best soccer story of 2016. Or, I would argue, the best soccer story of the 21st century and maybe beyond. Jonathan Northcroft is the author of the terrific new book, Fearless, the amazing underdog story of Leicester City, the greatest miracle in sports history. And he's also the soccer correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thanks for joining me, Jonathan. And congratulations on your book. It's a really enjoyable read.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Grant. Thanks for having me on. It's it's a real pleasure.
0: You know, right now, at the end of the year, we tend to look back at the year that was. But just to start this, remind I guess general sports fans why this was such a great sports story with Leicester City and then soccer fans why this story surpasses other soccer stories.
1: Yeah, I mean it's still a question I think we're trying to ask ourselves in terms of you know how 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 big an event was this? How how rare was what Leicester City did? It it really has nothing to to compare with, I would contend, and that's one of the the, the, the things that made last year so special because I, I really feel we were watching a team do what what, what nobody had done in in, in in football before, really without much compare. I would say even in in the sporting world, and and I tried to to go into it in the book really and and, and try and explain you know how, how rare how rare is an underdog achievement like that, you know Leicester winning the the Premier League title. Given that they were um, favourites for relegation, you know, favourites for the, the manager to be the first manager to be sacked, budgets are of course extremely important in in the in the Premier League, and unless wage bill was in the bottom three, now history tells you that uh, in twenty twenty five years, no team with a, a wage bill outside the the the, the, the top five. Had, had won it and actually no one since the 90s outside the top three wage bills had won it so all these things um, sort of come together and then of course the the, the the famous you know the bookmakers put a number on it and famously quoted it at 5,000 to 1 um, to make the achievement you know it, it was compared to let's say John Daly winning uh, the USPGA, um, to to Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson I think these are all plausible Explanations, but what we're talking about is a team sport, first of all, not an individual sport. And you know, winning a a league is 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 a sustained achievement. And you know, I said in the book, you know, Leicester winning, uh, if it is comparable to Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson, actually, the comparison would be Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson and then going the next thirty eight fights as the undefeated champion of the world, because Leicester had to had to climb that mountain every single week. And um there was you know, that's a I suppose that's a factual part of it, but just on a human level, um, I think there was a, a, a freshness to what they, they did that the, the, the Premier League and maybe maybe top football needed. And it, it was experiencing something completely new. And we don't get to do that very often I I think in this day of of um you know very sort of money money-orientated, major elite sport. So, you know, it's it's like nothing I've seen, uh, and I don't think I'll see anything like it again.
0: It's interesting to me because I think we live in a a day of recency. People always, you know, recency bias, I guess. People always want to say the newest thing is the greatest thing ever. And yet this is one of the few occasions that I can recall in in sports where – I I felt like in real time, this was not recency bias. I felt like I was watching history every week that this was happening, and I'll be honest. I, the only other time that I can kind of think of something similar was in when I was watching a recorded broadcast of the '86 World Cup the game between England and Argentina and Maradona scored not the hand of God goal, but that the goal from half field. And the commentator was Paul Gardner on us television. He called, he called it in the moment. That is one of the greatest goals, maybe the greatest goal in world cup history. I mean, like does that make it easier to decide to embark on a project like this? When you sort of know in the moment that this really is history that will be remarked upon, remembered decades and decades from now
1: definitely you know I, I, when you were so i, I felt so privileged to 1st of all, be covering the the premier league while this was happening secondly by uh, i suppose a, a piece of fortune uh, i was actually moving to leicester huh. um, yeah uh so you know I, I lived in the north of england for, for for 12 12 years after leaving scotland my wife's family are from leicester um, and we'd we'd been sort of planning the move for about a year and a half, and it just so happened I was moving to Leicester. The uh, <laughs> in the in in the in the three or four months that, that you know they were they were in the middle of this miracle, and and to be witness to that and to be in the right place at the right time felt um, you know as, as you say, Grant, you, you know sometimes when when you're watching history when history is happening, and you want to grab it. And, and that's that's how I felt. I, I've got a young family. I, I'd had offers to write a book before, and you know, something I'd always wanted to do as an ambition, but I'd always said no because, from a lifestyle point of view, I guess I thought I'll let the kids grow up and I'll, I'll I'll just make sure works a little bit quieter before embarking on something like that. But I was caught at a very weak moment at half time of Manchester City one Leicester city three uh in 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 February um by a literary agent who who texted me and said um this is incredible you you've got to write a book about this you know you're you're in the right place and um swept away by 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 everything I I I said yes and, and I absolutely didn't regret it I felt it was an enormous privilege to I suppose be able to document um that that piece of history that we were seeing and uh Despite the sleepless nights and the, the hours, um, it was just a you know, if you if you d- didn't take pleasure from watching Leicester last season, I don't think you can take pleasure from sport. And, and the whole thing was enormous
0: fun. Now, before we get into some of the details in the book, uh, you're the soccer correspondent for the Sunday Times in London. Uh, I assume it's called football correspondent in their pages. Uh, for Americans who may not be familiar with customs over there in the media, could you explain the difference between the Times and the Sunday Times of London?
1: Sure. I mean, we're, we're sister papers, um, but we're 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 separate entities. So we've got completely separate staffs. Um, we've got you know separate editorial staff and separate writing staff. Um, we've got separate offices, although we're you know we're, we're in the same building. Um, but really, it, 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 not, not only are we are, do we have that separation, you know, in, in kind of corporate terms. There's actually a, 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 a bylaw um, of, of, of in, that was instituted in Parliament in the 80s to, to ensure that the, the Times and the Sunday Times are always remain separate. Because what we've seen in the last sort of 20 years is a lot of newspapers starting to go to seven day operations. I guess but we're not actually allowed to do that by statute and this came about because in the 80s um I think Rupert Murdoch got special permission to to move the premises and 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 you know blah 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 he got he got favours from the government but one of the things they they wanted to ensure was that he didn't actually sell the the company having having had those favours so so yeah we 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 are separate i mean it's a funny thing because although we are the same company we we kind of compete with each other really and I always think of it like, um, you know, you're competing with your brother uh, to please to please your parents, I suppose. So if we, if, we, if we, yeah, if we if we lose out to the times on a story, in some ways it hurts more than if we lose out to a completely different title. Um, it, it's a funny one.
0: I do remember being amazed the first time I saw a post game interview session after a game in England, and the writers for the Sunday papers were. Kind of in one group, and the writers for the daily papers were in another group, and they really didn't want to let each other into their each other's groups. Why was that the case, and is it still that way?
1: It it is, and you know, as you're saying it, Grant, I'm I'm groaning because that separation has led to some pretty bad behaviour by (laughs) British journalists. And you you may be being polite; you've probably seen it, but um, yeah. Every we, we we do divide into our our groups. I think the phenomenon of Sunday only newspapers is quite a British thing. Um, recently, you know, we've had foreign managers, for example, Pep Guardiola um, coming to England. Jurgen Klopp's another one, and they just don't understand why they have to do a press conference, which you know will involve talking to the broadcasters first, and then a bunch of newspaper guys. And then that bunch of newspaper guys leaves the room and another bunch of newspaper guys sits down and, and, you know, Pep Guardiola is saying, well, (laughs) this is my third press conference. I'd only sign up for one. But it's part of our tradition um, and... You know, as I mentioned, papers are starting to go seven days. So I think the importance of Sunday papers are being diluted a little bit. But, you know, we are still there and we're trying to compete with the daily guys and get separate material. And and that's why you'd see in a mix zone, for example... um, yeah you know us guys and and another group of guys almost almost at war with each other because we're trying to we're trying to scoop them albeit that we're trying to scoop them and then sit on the information for five days before we can publish it usually wait till sunday
0: that's interesting every country has its customs you know like in spain pep gordiola was probably doing radio one-on-one interviews at midnight because that's what everyone does over there um so, in your job with the Sunday Times, how much did you follow Leicester for your newspaper last season, and was that helped by moving to Leicester?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, as a matter of course. I mean, well, let's take the season before actually, when you know Leicester avoided relegation and coming down the stretch of the season. I mean, I think I'd reported on Leicester maybe twice in that season because, I mean, I'm, I, I tend to be reporting on the top of the table. Mm-hmm. And you only get involved in the relegation teams right at the end when there's a you know when it's on the line and when there's a lot of drama. But but generally nothing's going to trump Manchester United or Liverpool or, or, or Chelsea or Arsenal. So you know the answer is not very much before last year. Um, and then even last year when Leicester were top of the league, there was an attitude in newspaper offices that ah this you know th- this isn't really. Going to happen. Let's still follow Chelsea. Let's still follow Arsenal. You know, Chelsea was an amazing story because of Mourinho's implosion. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of Chelsea last season. Lots of Man United, um, and it was only in the final sort of two or three months of the season that that really I was being sent to Leicester every week for the paper. Of course, when I when I moved to the city, I just started, and I was already. Writing the book, I started going to to every single you know Leicester game and press conference that I could. But you know, I remember moving to Leicester when when we were planning the move and thinking, you know, if they could just stay in the Premier League for a few years, you know, if they can just avoid relegation, I'll have one or two local games a season. You know, maybe when Man United come to town, that I'll be able to to go to something on my doorstep. And uh, yeah, it, it, it didn't quite turn out that way. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned that you got a text message from a literary agent, uh, da- David Luxton, who I-, I know as well, and he's like the guy I think of when I think of sports literary agents in the UK. Uh, really neat guy. Um, and once you had that text exchange, how did the book come together from there?
1: Well, very, I mean, very quickly, we, we, we got a proposal written out. And the big question at that point, so this was February, the big question was, what happens if they don't win the league? Do we still write a book? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of debate between me and David, um, and we took it to publishers, and it was something you know. I think we, we we narrowed it down to three publishers, and two of them actually only really wanted the book if Leicester won the league, and one of them wanted the book whatever happened. And actually, that was one of the major reasons that was headline, and we went with them because they just believed in the in the project completely. Mm-hmm. But my my take on it by the time you know, we got to the final five or six games of the season was what Leicester did was incredible. And whether they won or lost, it was, it was an amazing story. Um, and actually if they lost, it would have been a different type of story. It would have been a really heartbreaking story, I guess in the end, but still an incredible thing. So, um, from, from sort of the point of view, of getting the publisher nailed down, it was then a mad rush to, to get down to the training ground, to, to, you know, speak to players as often as, as I could to try and arrange some special interviews. Um, but the other challenge, I, I didn't want the book to just be about events on the field. And in fact, Grant, I remember reading a great piece you did about Leicester when you, you found the the foxes, the the, the couple that got married. Um, <laughs> at, at, or did they get married at the at They the did.
0: Uh, they did not get married at the stadium, but they got engaged on the flight over to watch their first Leicester game together. And the guy's last name His name was Rocky Fox.
1: (laughs) Meant to be. Uh, Well, I love that. I remember remember that story, and I wanted to get stories like that in, and I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, a a broader perspective than than just the the matches and and, and the the minutiae of the football. I also had the challenge, I mean... It was important also to 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 put it in the context of Leicester, the city, because Leicester's quite an unusual city in in English terms, and maybe we can talk about this. But you know, I I, I having visited it many times as as while visiting my wife's parents, it, it's quite different to actually really knowing somewhere and getting to know it. So the first thing I did when we when we moved the city and w- was to try and you know spend as much time rooting out um, the different corners and the different cultures. Um because Leicester is incredibly multicultural and really you know, really doing all of that. And then uh, we had the end of the season, um which I was still reporting for the Sunday Times on you know the end of the Premier League, uh, on, on, on the Champions League. Then of course there was the European Championships, uh, and I'm one of my roles is to cover England. So I went away to France to to cover England with a, a sort of small fear that England might might ruin this book by by going deep in the tournament and actually, you know, maybe even winning it, exactly. And yeah, that was that that, that was unfounded, as, as we know. So, in fact, England did me an enormous favour by going out as spectacularly and as early as possible. And then um, I mean, the good thing about being in France was it enabled me to to go and meet some of the people in in Riyad Mahrez's background and, and in Golo Kanté's background. I mean, that was just a great bit of fortune. I was not only are those guys French, but they're you know they're from from Paris basically, or the, the outskirts of Paris, which is where I was with with England. So I was able to do some work on the book while I was there. And then um, it came down to trying to hit a deadline of August the first. Which meant I had three weeks after coming back from the Euros, and I just hid myself away in a in a cottage in the countryside, grew a beard, went slightly mad, uh, and and tried to write five thousand words a day, and um, uh, uh, and just about got away with it.
0: Wow, very, <laughs> very impressive. I never got above thirty five hundred words a day when I was writing my first book, but uh, that uh, that's something. I hope you took a picture like a picture of yourself in your beard and sort of. Scary Ted Kaczynski-like existence when you were writing the book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, I had a, had a checked shirt, the whole lot. I was dreaming of Jamie Vardy at one point. I'm, I'm not joking. I was, it was coming to me in, in my dreams. I have talked to myself quite a lot. But, you know, I, I enjoyed all of that. It's part of the, the writer experience, I suppose.
0: Well, given the media demand, it couldn't have been easy to get the participation of the people involved, and yet you were able to do that with... Several people with Leicester City. Uh, how were you able to make that happen?
1: Well, that, that's a very good question. A good point. Um, I mean, Leicester themselves had, I think, I think mine's one of six or seven books on Leicester for a start, and and Leicester had, you know, a, a huge number of proposals put to them—not just books, but documentaries, uh, you know, films, the whole lot. Magazines wanted 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 them, and. I had to to really just you know rely on a good relationship at the club, convince them of, of the merits of, of my book, and thankfully you know I, I, there's a great guy in the, in the press office called Anthony Hedley, who, who you probably know, Grant. And, yeah, and he agreed. He believed. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he, he he believed in the project, and and he said, no, this is this is a book I want to happen, um, and really, the, you know, Le, 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 Lester just they didn't know what was happening. You know, what they 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 as a club, had never remotely done anything like they did last season. So I guess on a kind of structural level, they weren't really – they were winging it, essentially. So, you know, they were going from game to game. They were trying to deal with the demands of the world's media. They had Once they won the title, they had pretty much a party every night or a civic reception or a lunch. So finding time in the diary to speak to people was pretty difficult. And in the end, I ended up just just going down to the training ground uh, and Anthony was kind enough to, to just put players my way when, when, when he could the big one was actually Robert Hoof because he hardly ever does interviews mm. and I don't know if he was feeling good that day or, or whatever but um, but he agreed to speak to me and it was a very short notice I didn't know I was speaking to him and in fact I budgeted for not speaking to him so it was an interview that I kind of had to do off the top of my head and funnily enough it was a was fa- my favourite interview that I did for the book so it just shows you sometimes sometimes these things work um, but I didn't get to speak to everyone I wanted to. One of the problems, of course, was that, you know, they were doing their own books by this point. So Claudio Ranieri had, had, had sort of signed up to do a book and Jamie Vardy had signed up to do a book. Uh, so I wasn't able to, to speak to these guys one-on-one. I had to had to rely on, on you know, sort of group interviews and other things <laughs> I'd done with them. But I quite enjoyed that. I, I felt that that meant that I had to go and... Put in some hard yards and try and find out things about these guys and tell their stories in a different way without, you know, having as much first-person stuff as, as, as I wanted to. So, hopefully, that gave the book a little bit of balance. You know, if I if I interviewed everybody, it might have been quite samey. I think.
0: Well, I like the way that those people like Ranieri, Mares, uh, you know, their voices are in the book. I assume from group interviews. But then you've also found some good people to talk to from the backstories of people like Ranieri with Tor Christian Carlson, the former sporting director at Monaco, and who worked with him there. You went to the Paris suburbs uh, where Mares had been. You talked to people who knew N'Golo Kante, who probably spoke to you a lot more than even if you'd gotten Kante to sit down with you would have. <laughs>
1: It's funny because I last week I actually interviewed kante for the for the Sunday Times, which you know it's an interview that I've been trying to get for for the best part of two years, and everybody' had been trying to get Kante and he agreed to speak to me, I think partly because I wrote the book, but um he's a lovely guy, but talking isn't his isn't his specialist thing you know he's he doings his thing and and I did get more out of speaking probably to to the people who nurtured him and knew him and and and, and a part of his background, than I probably would have done from from him and 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 you know. Also, sometimes people will tell. Will, sometimes people will be a lot more honest about someone they know than than you know someone is about themselves. So I felt in, in the case of Jamie Vardy, that was quite useful because there's there's a lot in Jamie Vardy's backstory and in his in his character that I think the challenge when you're interviewing him is is you know he, he, he's he. Like, like any sportsman probably wants to move on from, from things he's done in his past. And, and actually I found it quite useful going into his backstory um, through through other people because I was probably able to, to get people to speak quite frankly about him that he might have not have been quite so honest about himself.
0: I agree with that. And also guys like Mares and Kante I thought were, at least as a journalist myself reporting on this team, some of the harder guys to write about just because of maybe not being as into interviews or language barriers or, or things like that, I learned about those guys in your book uh, in new ways, which I thought was cool. We're speaking to Jonathan Northcroft, who's at Northcroft on Twitter. His book is Fearless, The Amazing Underdog Story of Leicester City, The Greatest Miracle in Sports History. Jonathan, in the book, first-year manager Claudio Ranieri He's amazing to me uh, for basically not changing much at all from what the team had been doing under previous manager Nigel Pearson when he came in. Is there a lesson in there from a management perspective?
1: Oh, gosh, there is. I, and I, I, I like you, Grant. I, I, I love the, the, the less is more approach that, that he took to things. I think he's, a, he's, he's an unusual character, you know, for an elite manager. There's, a, there's an absence of ego about Claudio which I, I don't think you see in many high achievers of that sort. And I think that really helped him because when he when he arrived, his Italian instincts were to do a number of things. First of all, to, to make them train more because Leicester had this well-worked-out, sports science-led approach to training, which really was about reducing the load on players, giving them a lot of days off. Now, Claudio, you know, coming from the Italian background, he wanted to train them a lot harder. He also had... An idea about players he wanted to bring in from Serie A, and he had ideas about how staff should work and all sorts of things. But as I say, he, he, he's not uh, a self-important guy in any way, and he had the—I think it helped that he was 64 years old as well. Mm-hmm. It, it was—it was a mature thing for him to do, but he was able to—to to, you know, the fir- i found that, speaking to the players the first week or two that he spent in the club fascinating. Because he, he's such a great communicator, but in those first two and two, two and a half weeks he, he didn't say anything. I mean he, he, he went away to Bad Raskerberg, the 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 training camp in Austria and, and really just you know, I think as Kaspar Schmeichel said, it was like a school teacher, you know, really? just standing watching everybody, not saying anything, keeping his own counsel. Uh, he was just assessing people, assessing the staff, assessing the players. He he continued that when he when he came back, really you know in the sort of initial weeks just just learned as much as he could and had the confidence and the maturity to to you know as he said, he added his Italian tactics, but he left the rest alone um, which is terrific and and there is a big lesson because you see managers especially younger managers i think they, they want they want to show they don't just want to make an impact they want to show people they're making an impact right. And there's always an instinct to say the guy before me was, was all wrong and I need to change everything. You know, I need my own staff, I need to put a stamp on things, I need to sign six different players, um, I need to change the tactics, I need to change the system. Um, and I think Claudio, you know, Leicester's his 16th job when he's 64 years old and, and his Tor Christian Carlson told me he's got enormous sort of calm about him and probably a quiet confidence that 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 he knows what he's doing and, and didn't feel the need to to impose himself. And I, I can't think of another manager like him um in the last sort of twenty years that's won an English title. I think if you go back and speak to people like Bob Paisley at Liverpool, I think he was a very quiet man, um who, who, you know, managed in a sort of collegiate way with the boot room. So maybe he would be the the nearest comparison. And and one of the things I loved about it was the way Claudio rewrote what we all thought of as, as, you know, what a winning manager looks like.
0: Right, right. When I went over to Leicester in March for a Sports Illustrated story, Ranieri came into the press conference and shook hands with me and then with every other journalist in the room. I have never seen anything like that in 20 years of doing this job. How did that get started?
1: Well, what you got gonna... going to... Realise is that at the at the beginning of the season, a Leicester press conference would be eight guys, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and in that big in the same room that you saw him, Grant. So you know you're talking about in a in a big old press conference room, but eight local reporters sitting there. So I think he 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 he, he you know just just did it as a as natural thing, probably because it was a, a small intimate setting and then just kept it going, and and I think the next group of journalists that arrived really were the Japanese who were reporting on Okazaki, so you'd have the eight local guys, you might have four Japanese guys as well, but the thing about Claudio, he's got such good manners that, that having started this ritual, um, he wasn't going to let the fact that his, his press conference numbers were growing and growing by the week put, put him off, you know, exercising <laughs> good manners, so I think there were about 50 people by then. I mean, I, I, remember, I remember your visit, and I think the, that was more or less at the height of it. So, you know, how long did he take? What, 10, 10 minutes to shake everyone's hand? Or
0: It took a while, and at first I was like, is this guy for real? And and it w- became very clear that he was.
1: And, and of course, he there was, there was one game where it, it was just too much. He opened the door, and he saw... You know the sea of faces, and 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 yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, he was he was having to climb over chairs to shake people's hands by by the end of it. So I think this one day he just thought, you know, I just can't do this, and he went straight to the podium. And of course, that was the the slightly disastrous game against West Ham, where um, uh, you know they, they 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 went absolutely to the brink. Vardy was sent off, of course, and the the winning run ended. And the next week. Um Claudio said, I'm not making that mistake again. So he 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 took his five, ten minutes to to shake the fifty hands and, and, and <laughs> kept it going after that.
0: So of all of the characters in your book, whose story was the most surprising or perhaps unexpectedly interesting to you in reporting and writing the book?
1: I I would say Andy King, actually. Um Andy King, because he's and I I I love Andy King. I think any Anyone that really gets into Leicester gets to love Andy King. He's a classic. What we'd say he's part of the furniture. Mm. You know, the 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 squad guy, not the not even necessarily a first choice player, but maybe the 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 first guy that you'd go to as the manager to find out, you know, how the lads felt about something, or the first guy you'd go to in the dressing room if you had a problem. You know, not the captain, but but you know, a guy that's been at the club for. The longest, um, you know, no ego about him. A real club servant, a really pleasant and and sort of friendly guy. Um, And I love telling his story because if Leicester were a team of unsung heroes, he was maybe the most, you know, one of the most unsung of the lot of them. And he was also the one that had had been with Leicester when they were in the third tier of English football. Mm -hmm. You know, he he signed signed for them when he was fifteen. He'd been he'd been with Chelsea. He didn't quite make it at Chelsea. He's from the south. He came up, had never been to Leicester before, but he, he he joined this club, and then they immediately got relegated from the second tier to the third tier. And he started his career as a teenager with them, and had been through everything, and and absolutely knew how much the the the, the story meant to the, the club and the title meant to the club. Another thing about Andy King is he, he's a really bright guy, and that helped because he was able to actually analyse a little bit what was going on in the dressing room and he gave me the great line where um, I don't know if you guys get the British sitcom Only Fools and Horses, so you might not you might not get the might not quite get the reference, but I'll try and explain it. He said but it was fascinating. When they when they won the title, when they were at Jamie Vardy's house having this party and watching Chelsea draw with Tottenham, which meant that they were they were winners, he said that there was there was an incredible high, you know, there was a 10, 15 minutes of of you know, just sheer bliss and partying and guys hugging each other. And then he said it went, it really went flat. He said for 10, 10 or 15 minutes after that, he said, we just kind of sat down and we felt really empty. And he likened it to this famous episode in Only Fools and Horses, which is about these two guys who are always trying to, that they're, they're traders and they're always trying to become millionaires. And, that you know, they're kind of lovable losers, but they get lucky and they, they eventually become millionaires. And then, of course, the sting is in the, in, in in the episode. Um, there, Delboy, the main character, he's he's offered it's actually second hand second hand electric fires. Somebody offers him some fires and says, "Would you like to sell these on your market stall?" And he and he's ready to he's ready to say yes because he loves a deal. And his sidekick has to remind him, but you know we don't need to do that anymore. We're, we're millionaires. And it's a great moment of pathos because he feels absolutely flat. Because of course, it's a journey that has kept him going, not not actually becoming a millionaire. And anyway, Andy King said it was like that episode of Only Fools and Horses. He said we sat down for for fifteen minutes and we just felt empty. We felt flat. We sort of wondered what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. You know, we've we've just we've just lived them. You know, just we've just won the English Championship. Whatever is going to be any good again? And then he said, you know, we we everything everything picked up after that and they phoned their families and everybody was happy again but i love telling his story because he was full of insights like that as well um you know as i say this ultimate club guy but quite a smart guy as well who was able to had a nice line and what was going on
0: it reminds me a little bit of the end of the movie the graduate where dustin hoffman finally gets katherine ross absolutely on the bus and you see this last scene and there's this moment where they're just kind of sitting there on the bus, kind of like saying now what?
1: Yeah, it's his face, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, you know, on the night Lester ended up clinching the Premier League title, I was going to ask you about this. The players gathered at Vardy's house to watch Chelsea against Spurs. And, you know, they needed Chelsea to get a result. Uh, Chelsea was up two nothing or Spurs was up two nothing in that game. Chelsea comes back, does get the result on a terrific Ed and Hazard goal. I love the way you set the scene in the book and all the different things, including what you mentioned about Andy King. Kind of my favorite moment from just following it that night was the viral video of Wes Morgan, maybe a, a few Captain Morgan's in being dragged around the floor of Vardy's kitchen in celebration. What were your favorite parts of that telling the story of that night?
1: Oh, that, I mean, that was such a pleasure that that chapter. Yeah, I love I love doing that bit, and that I mean the the, the Morgan uh, moment was great because of course the guy that was dragging him around was Marcin Vasilevsky, this you know the the kind of Polish strong guy mm-hmm. who I, he's a great character because he didn't play very much, but you know this big tough bearded guy who. Um, you know, set all records for it in the weights room. Um, you know, Les was fav- famous from this cryotherapy chamber, where you're only supposed to try and endure two minutes, in there. and then of course Vasilevsky endured five minutes in there because he's he's made a steal. You know, when when he played in Belgium, he lifted a car for a bet once. You know, he's, he's this kind of guy. So it was entirely appropriate that he was hauling Wes Morgan, who was a big, big guy. But he's hauling him around like he's, you know, like he, like he's a kid or something like that. So that was a great scene. But actually, my, I mean, I, I had the good fortune to be. Uh, that, it, it, I wasn't reporting for the newspaper that night. I was watching the game on TV in Leicester. And you know, you talked earlier about history happening in front of you. You know, when full time went, um, when the whistle went, I think it took about ten seconds before. Outside my, my door, I heard the first sort of car horns beeping. And I just thought, this is, this is amazing. I've got to get out, out in the city. And headed down to, to the King Power Stadium, which by then, you know, the whole city was, was, was heading that way. And it was just being in the crowd that night. It was watching people who'd never won anything try and celebrate. You know, I think I said in the book, when Real Madrid wins something... They've got a ritual, you know, they they, they go to the town square. Bayern Munich have got the same thing. They, there's an appointed, you go to the mayor's, the crowds gather outside the mayor's um, residence and they lift the trophy and all that sort of stuff. Nobody in Leicester had the faintest idea what to do and I was watching these people outside the King Power. The other thing, of course, is it's got quite a high Asian population who don't. They don't really touch alcohol, they don't drink as much as... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I guess the, the sort of English guys do. Um, so it was a lovely atmosphere because there wasn't a drunken edge to it. It was uh, a really lots of kids, and it was late at night, but lots of kids, lots of families, um, people just not really knowing what to do, but just being deliriously happy, and um, just speaking to people that night, just seeing seeing everybody, uh, and trying to you know commit that to to the pages. Uh, as I said earlier, I, I quite enjoyed trying to put it in the context of ordinary people as well, and I guess those bits of the book gave me a lot of pleasure, so so definitely, yeah. But the, one, the other bit about Andy King and that night that I, I really enjoyed was he said, when they were at Vardy's house and they were watching the first half of the game, and you know they, 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 they arrived, like guys do, they arrived, everybody got a beer from the fridge, sat down, started drinking, and he said, when it went to 2-0 for Tottenham, he said, we suddenly had this horrible thought that, um, you know, we've got training tomorrow and <laughs> we, we actually have to win the next game now. You know, and he said, all these beers went down, you know, <laughs> without anyone saying anything. The beers just went to the floor and guys were getting glasses of water. So I like that, I like that image as well.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, in reading the book, it becomes very clear that analytics and good old-fashioned scouting were a big part of the Leicester success story. Could, could you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, lots of different levels. There was a great combination between the traditional and the modern at Leicester. You know, sports science, for example, Ranieri's coaching. But, but recruitment was absolutely all about that. Um, if you can imagine, when they were in the third tier, Nigel Pearson was a manager at that point and he was offered re- really he, he was offered a choice he could he could try and sign a couple of players or he could do things properly and he could you know install the best possible um, analysis department that he could he could hire a bunch of young guys who were going to you know help with recruitment analytics and help with the scouting of opposition teams and I can't think of many managers who would have made this choice, but he decided to not, you know, forgo signing the couple of players that might have helped them get out of this this third tier league. He's, you know, he went for the long term thing, and, and he he started the the analytics department. So you go forward four or five years, and um, you know, Pearson's gone away. He's come back again. When he comes back, um, Leicester get very close to getting promoted to the Premier League, but they miss out in, in the playoff and he goes away with his staff again and they all you know, basically talk about what we must do next and again he makes a choice that he's 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 gonna put even more faith in his staff and in the science and in, in these departments that he's he's already invested in so you had you had really empowered analysis guys at, at the club, but they were also. Um, you know, they, they were working in tandem with, with Steve Walsh, who's the chief scout, who, who, you know, 35 years in the game, an old school teacher, a coach, um, a really nice, old, experienced guy who, who's just got a great eye for footballers. David Mills, his, his number two, again, um, in his 60s. I just, you know, one of these old horse whisperer guys who can, who can, who can watch a player and just see the small details with the eye, and there's a lovely combination between their judgment and the the numbers side of things uh, that the, the analytics guys were were coming up with. So, in the case of Riyad Mahrez, um, for example, you know, Steve Walsh had been to watch a game. He'd been trying to watch another player called Ryan Mendes, who in, in the end went to Forest. Didn't quite like what he saw, but he he liked the look of of, of when when he when he reported back with this this knowledge. The analytics guys had already, you know, Mahrez was already on their radar, and and they'd they, one thing they do at Leicester is they don't just rely on the on, on the kind of general stats that are out there, but they make their own stats mm-hmm. um, up. So one of the things they'd found about Mariz was, um, you know, I think the number of chances. Uh, that he that he that he creates, you know, on breakaways. So that that's very important to how Leicester play. They were able to come up with some nuts, come up with the numbers there, and it was fusing the two kind of approaches. Kante was another one where, again, the numbers were there that this guy was a leading player in Europe for tackles and in, and interceptions. Mm-hmm. But one of the really clever things was that he was also playing for club can in 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 the French league, who were. Number two, I think, or n- number two or number one, for a very obscure stat, but it's it's it basically it's a measure of how quick a team goes from one end of the pitch to another hmm. uh, in in attack. And can were with with the the, the the quickest team in Europe, Leicester were actually the fourth quickest team. So it was looking at Kante and not just seeing the tackles and interceptions, but seeing that statistically this team that he was already playing for actually played incredibly like Leicester and that and he, he was a big part of that. Um, so there was, a, there was a sort of joined-up nature to to signing him. Um, and, yeah, it, it, again, everything was quite nicely in balance at Leicester. So they didn't sign people on the basis of, of the figures and the numbers, but they didn't sign people on the basis of these old scouts just having a hunch and going with it. They, they brought the two approaches together which I thought was a very good thing, and it, because it's a small club and it's a small training ground, of course the other thing was the the analytics guys worked in the same room as Steve Walsh, mm-hmm. and, and Steve Walsh worked was was also assistant manager, not just the head of recruitment. So these young these young sort of guys had a had a real direct line into the management of the of the club that I, I think in bigger clubs you know just isn't possible. Um, so it, was fa- it fascinated me. There was a real sort of high-quality cottage industry going on.
0: Well, I think too often we hear that it's either one option or the other. It's either you use the numbers guys or you use the old scouts. And it's great for, I think, people to see that you can do both, and you probably should do both, and you can be successful doing both. Um, now, go ahead.
1: Well, that's, yeah, I agree with that. I was just going to say, because the thing about the numbers is it, it, you can get numbers on anything you like, but you need to know what you're looking for. And I think that's where joining the approach works so well. You know, ask if, if the scouts know exactly what they're looking for and the analytics guys can can come up with the evidence that that that's probably how it should work. It, it, it's interpreting the the knowledge that analysis gives you. I think that's the important thing. And that's what Leicester did really well.
0: Now, obviously this season, Leicester has struggled a bit in the premier league. Conte uh, was sold to Chelsea, um, to me, it actually makes what Leicester achieved last season even more singular. And yet, we're at the end of this year looking back and I kind of feel like Leicester isn't getting enough credit for what they did. And I'm wondering, is that just a US thing or is that the case in England as well?
1: No, it's, 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 it's very much the case here. I mean, Leicester won um, the BBC Sports Team of the Year a week ago and there was a backlash against it. Because people are short termist and they're looking at Leicester now, and four or five months is a long time in, in our kind of accelerated world. And, and in the Premier League, you know, it, it, it's an age away. And I think people have started to forget already what Leicester did. In fact, one thing that struck me as a reporter was that within about a week of Leicester winning the title, our front pages and back, so our back pages were, were, were pretty much back to the normal agenda, which is. You know, Josie Mourinho is arriving at Manchester United. Pep Guardiola is coming to Manchester City. Arsene Wenger is going to stay. Who are the big clubs going to sign? You know, it, it, it became very much as if you know, Wesley. Right, you've had your time. Um, now the agenda is going back to normal, and I really think, um, I really think that's that that's discontinued over the last few months, and because I'm not doing well. It's funny how people seem to think that somehow invalidates what they did. I completely agree with you. I, I think it just emphasises how out of the ordinary it was, yeah. and it you, you took most Leicester fans see it that way as well. Most Leicester fans, you know, they, I, in fact, I was, I was a friend of mine just yesterday was saying, you know, look, we're seventeenth in the league. That, that that's fine. You know, <laughs> until last year, seventeenth was the limit of our ambition. So this is a good season.
0: (laughs) Well, there's another side story here, which is in Champions League, Leicester drew an easy group. They advanced with ease. Now they have Sevilla coming next in the round of 16. How far do you think Leicester could go in Champions League?
1: Well, I mean, and I like the matchup with Sevilla. I think they, they, they will suit Leicester quite well. Um, I think they'll, I think they'll go quarterfinals. I really do. Um, In the, Champions League, they've been able to do two things. I think they've had a mental freshness about them. You know, they, they've they've recaptured that spirit of, of adventure that they had last season in the Premier League, and of course, teams have just not quite been as savvy about playing against Leicester, um, and they've given them that that extra bit of space. But they they have also had quite an easy group that has to be said too, and 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 it it, it definitely helped them um, having having that kind of untaxing draw. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of precedent there. Nottingham Forest famously, you know, came came up, won the English title and then won the European Cup the next next year, the kind of momentum just rolled on and Leicester aren't gonna win the Champions League, but I I, I think they'll go last I think they'll go last eight and if they get a really good draw, you, you just never know.
0: Yeah. Here's a question for you. I'm wondering in media, we're generally told not to to root for a team to have teams that we are biased towards but was there a moment at any point when you, sort of your human instincts took over watching Leicester last season and you kind of got emotional yourself just watching it
1: yeah um that's another thing that you know ah, this team made me emotional uh, this team made me feel Excited in a, in a way that I don't think I'd felt professionally for a long time, and that actually happened. That like, the first the first time I felt that was when I was at the game where Vardy broke the scoring record against Manchester United, mm. uh, which was in November. So really, you know, winning the title wasn't on the agenda then. But there's something special about the stadium, and some, there was just something in the air. I guess you had to sort of be there. But I, I went away from from that game just seeing just feeling what was there, seeing what Vardy did. Um, what got me was the fact that, you know, it, it was just a small thing, but the game had been built up so, so big. You know, this guy, this striker from a small team, he could break the English scoring record for goals in consecutive league games. And he's playing as Manchester United. And it's it's a TV game. It's, it's, it's being shown around the world. And every what experience as a reporter tells you that when you go to those types of things, they almost invariably fail to live up to the hype. The, the small team just chokes, or it doesn't—you know—it performs well, but it, it, the, the magic doesn't quite happen. And what, what took me that day was the magic didn't just happen. You know, it was it was it was extraordinary that Vardy scored so emphatically. The, the stadium was electric. The place was—you know—Manchester United were lucky to get out of there with a draw. And I went, you know, walked back to the car cold night with a real bounce in my step and just a feeling of excitement that I don't think you get very often as a seasoned reporter. And I, I felt that like nearly every time I went to Leicester after that.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, I only went to one game uh, in in person last year, and that was the Norwich City game at home, which was a very difficult game. Before Ujoa scores very late to win. And my friend Nathan McVitie, who works worked for the club, was sitting next to me. And he gave me this giant bear hug <laughs> afterward. And it was impossible not to feel something like just so human about being connected to this story. And I felt it watching it from a distance every week in, in New York. I mean, it's something that connected that way, I think, viscerally with so many people in so many countries around the world that it became this sort of universal story that inspired a ton of folks.
1: Because because what you were watching were guys, I mean, you know, they weren't exactly like normal people. They're still elite footballers. They're still earning a good, lo- good lot of money. They're still near the top of the game. But they were as close to being normal people as you're ever going to get in that scenario. You know, you think of someone like Wes Morgan who um at the age of fifteen, sixteen, you know, he, he was he was basically released from Knox County because he was overweight and he wasn't quite good enough. And he he went and played the kind of football that, that probably you and I have played, Grant, and, and and then from that point fought his way back, lost some weight, worked really hard and, and dragged himself into this professional career. But then it takes to the age of thirty before he gets into the top flight for the first time, struggles in the top flight. Looks like he, he, he he's you know he's, he's he's gone above his level, but sticks in, learns, and ends up becoming you know the, the captain of this miraculous team. And Wes Morgan was just one story, you know. Mahrez was you know ignored till he was eighteen. Kante was ignored till he was nineteen or twenty. Jamie Vardy was playing football in this kind of windswept hillside village in in in, in Yorkshire, and these guys were about as close to normal as you're ever going to get and And you could see it, you could see it in the way they reacted, you could see it in in their faces when they were in in the throes of achieving what they were achieving and I think you saw it from the fans as well because you know the supporters, even to the point where they won the title they were they were singing, you know we are staying up, you know they never lost their own sense of humor about where they'd come from um we are staying up because that's their that's their ambition every year and there was a real genuineness about it all and and I think I, I was really reassured to see that that you know I think people all over the world got that. So you felt, yeah, it's not just I'm not just being sentimental. I think I think everybody gets whatever this this magic is. I think I think people get it. I think people got it all over the place. Not even, even non football fans got it.
0: Just to finish up here, and I appreciate you taking this much time. Do you think we'll ever see something again like what Leicester City did last season?
1: I mean, logic tells you that if it's happened once, then you can't say it'll never happen again. So it it might, but Ren- I mean my starting point on that is Ren- Ranieri said himself that, you know, once every 50 years, the conditions are there for something like that to happen. So you know, his point was that once every 50 years, maybe, all the big teams will fail, which is what happened last season. Um, so you've got to wait 50 years for it to even be possible. But then some team, some smaller teams, got to grasp of the nettle and 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 run with it, which Leicester were able to do. Um, so will it happen again? You know, it's possible, but the five thousand to one odds were probably there for a reason. Those odds tell you that um, in every five thousand seasons of English football, you know, this will happen once, and we'll be waiting another five thousand years for it to happen again. So, yeah. I, I I, I don't know. I mean, there was there was a lot written last year about how other teams were going to do a Leicester, which is already you know that phrases in the lexicon now do a Leicester. Um, but what's happened this year? The the, the big guns of of you know they've got they've got their acts together. The empire has struck back, and we see some very familiar teams at the at the top of the table. So long winded way of saying it might happen again, but I really don't expect it
0: to the book is fearless the amazing underdog story of leicester city the greatest miracle in sports history my friend jonathan northcroft can be found on twitter at jnorthcroft. jonathan thanks so much for joining me happy new year
1: oh thanks grant happy new year to you
0: thanks for listening to the planet football podcast i'd like to thank jonathan northcroft as well as everyone at digital media and sports illustrated who supports this podcast If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Rory Smith, Bruce Arena, Juan Carlos Osorio, Tomas Mueller, and Gary Lineker. You can subscribe to and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy New Year, everyone.